What a blessing to uh, be a part of worship with this great group of musicians. Wow, how powerful. Uh, my name's Robert Gorell. Uh, I retired after 43 years of serving the church the last day of August and joined you the first day of September as the teaching pastor. And I'm so delighted to be here. I teach Sundays and Wednesdays. You're always welcome to be a part of those classes. Don't have to even be there at the beginning. Come anytime. I'm always glad to see you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks for the wonder and the beauty of this day and this opportunity together and lift up the name of Jesus. Open our hearts now that your spirit might become alive in us. In the name of the Savior, we pray. And will you join me now in the reading of the scripture? It comes from Romans 8. For all are led by the Spirit of God, are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And that's Romans 8, 18. 8, I'm going to get it right in a minute, 8, 14 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. It's a beautiful place in Africa, in central Kenya, at the base of Mount Kenya. The descendants of the ancient Bantu tribes lived there, the Maru. They gather in that place and they, they live their lives in absolute beauty, but also in absolute poverty. In a small town uh, about the size of some of the smallest towns in Oklahoma, the Meru people uh, live there. And there are a million people living in that small area. 90% of them are unemployed. They'll have a small piece of land and a goat or two and and grow yams, and that is about all they have. Those million people for their medical care depend on a mission hospital that the Methodists established there back at the turn of the 19th century. So they come sometimes carrying the broken and the wounded and the injured and the ill 20, 30, 40 or more miles. They come to the Methodist hospital to be received and cared and blessed there. You can see my wife, Prudy, there in one of the wards of of that hospital. They gather there with hope. But at night, when the sun goes down, something quite extraordinary happens. Because the people are, are so impoverished, they can't even afford to bury those in their family who die. So at night, after the sun sets, they, they, they come across that land. It's, it's, the topography is about like Denver. It's high and rocky. They come from miles away, carrying the dying and the dead. To lay them at the gates of the Methodist hospital, where they know they will be received and loved and blessed and buried. 
And if you ask those people why they do that, why they bring their dying and their dead to the gates of the Methodist hospital, they'll simply say, because the Spirit told us to. And if you ask the great Christian people that operate the hospital and the church and do the ministry there, why they receive the dead and dying, they will say, because the Spirit told us to. And because we believe in the Holy Spirit. My wife Prudy and I met as a part of that mission project to Kenya. This is not when we met, I have to be honest. This is a few years later. We're there in Mawa, right there. That's a typical, it's the main street of Mawa. It's in front of the, on to our left, there's the biggest hotel uh, in Mawa. We met like this. I was a young guy just out of seminary. I was in my first job at St. Luke's downtown, where I was in charge of young adults, contemporary worship, and evangelism. And one day the bishop called me up. I was just out of seminary. No bishop had ever called me before. And I was nervous and excited. And he said, Robert, how would you like to be in charge of the Oklahoma mission to Mawa, Kenya? And I said, Bishop, I didn't even know we had such a mission. And he said, we do. And he's at the airport waiting for you to pick him up. One of our great bishops had been in Africa for a conference. He'd gotten up and made a speech to the African students are there and people gathered there and said, we have a wonderful Methodist University in Oklahoma. We'd love for you to come and go there. And one of the young men had taken him literally. And so Stanley Amunia, this is my brother Stanley, Stanley Amunia had showed up at the Oklahoma City Airport with a little blue vinyl suitcase and a dream of going to college. He grew up with, with, uh, in, a, in a situation that's, that's almost impossible for many of us to conceive of, that no cars, no indoor plumbing. Um, his father had many wives with many children. They all lived in little huts around the father's main hut. And I can remember his very first night in Oklahoma City, he got in the shower and I thought he might never come out. Right? Because he had never experienced indoor plumbing before. And he was enraptured with it. That we had this kind of water that we could just wash our bodies with it and you could stay as long as you wanted. That became a habit of his his whole time he was in America. Take long showers. So I had to organize this mission. And I began to ask people to do it. And there was a, a single mom in our church. She was raising two young girls. She was running her business down at Penn Square. She owned a store at Penn Square. Her name was Prudy. I didn't know I was going to marry her at the time. I was just a pastor in the church. She was a very active Sunday school teacher and leader. And, and I asked her, would you like to be a part of this? And I know that she must have thought to herself, you know, I got kids to raise. I'm doing that on my own. I've got a business to run. I, I just probably don't. She, she probably thought I don't have time. But something moved inside her heart. And she said yes. Because the Spirit told her to. And because we believe in the Holy Spirit. So we began to divide up the work of that ministry where we're bringing these wonderful young African people over from Kenya. We were training them at OCU, preparing to send them back to work in the hospital, to work in the community, particularly in community health. At that time, there was a massive AIDS crisis in Africa. 
So we were preparing them to do that work and to share Jesus Christ in the world. And we divided up the work, and Prudy, because none of the pastors would do it, agreed to teach them to drive. That's right. She agreed. And Prudy's dream had been, she owned a business and she said, I knew I was going to be successful when I could buy a red Mercedes. So she finally had bought that red Mercedes convertible, right? It was 20 years old, but you know, it was hers. And she would take these young Africans out, many of whom had never ridden in a, in a vehicle except to get on the bus to go to the airport. And she would teach them to drive, right? Some of you are shaking your heads, right? And so one day, she was, she was taking Stanley's wife, Mary, who's a, an incredible, awesome young lady. I think, you, yeah, you see her right there teaching. She's head of nursing in the hospital now. She was taking Mary out and teaching Mary to drive. Mary was driving Prudy's little red car, and Mary ran it right into the back of an Oklahoma City police car. <laughs> right? And you've got to wonder at that point, okay, is the Holy Spirit speaking to me, or what, what, what's going on here? They end up in court, of course, and there was a wonderful Methodist judge that Prudy knew who showed incredible love and grace to Mary, incredible kindness to a person who came from a part of the world where when you went to court, sometimes you disappeared in prison and were never seen again. He offered love and kindness because the Spirit told him to, because we Believe in the Holy Spirit. We're in this series now of, of talking about what we believe, working through the Apostles' Creed, learning those lines. That line about believing in the Holy Spirit is, is more than just words. Pretty and I have been blessed to, to lead a lot of Christian pilgrimages. We, we go to the Holy Land. Uh, we do John Wesley. We do, we do the, the, the footsteps of Paul. And a few years ago, we were so blessed. Our oldest daughter and our two oldest granddaughters were able to go with us as we did the journeys of Paul. Walking in Paul's footsteps, there we are. Uh, Tiffany, our oldest, is on the far right. That's Jordan next to her, our oldest grandchild next to the oldest, Kelsey, and then Prudy and, and me in the delightful hat. <laughs> right? And, and I, I thought, this is a great opportunity for us as a family to bond over our faith. What I found the girls wanted to bond over was shopping. They had saved up all their money. They wanted to go to Italy and buy like a Louis Vuitton purse or something like they'd saved and worked hard for that. And they seemed to sort of be missing the point of the whole thing. And one day we went out to the catacombs. We left the forum. We went to the catacombs where you remember Christians used to gather to worship. And we were there in the, in the catacombs, the guide and I were explaining what, what had happened there, how Christians had to worship there. One of my granddaughters noticed that there were tiny little niches cut all over in the catacombs about that size. And she asked about it. And I explained that in the Roman culture, when a child was born, especially a girl, if what you were hoping for were sons, you just took that little living baby and threw it out with the trash. And in the dark of the night, in those long ago times, Christians would come out at night and they would go through the trash piles of Rome, gathering up the children that had been left there.
Some of those children lived, they were adopted by Christian families and raised the full adulthood. But many of the little babies died. And the Christians were, were, were so committed to that kind of ministry. Then you'll be talking about communion with the saints and maybe dig into that a little bit. That they decided that these little babies who, who had no family, who'd been rejected by their families, deserved a family, so they would go down in the catacombs, they would find a Christian or a Christian couple who were buried there, and they would cut out a little niche next to their remains and place that child so that at least in death they had a family. Sometimes something happens in our families. That, that, that is beyond words or explanation. And as I was telling that story, I felt each of my granddaughters take my hands and squeeze tightly as they were trembling with tears. And the sudden realization of what it means to really be a Christian. Walk out into the dark night and to be hope and love and compassion when there often is none. And I explained, if you'd ask those early Christians why they did it, they would have said something like, because the Spirit told us to, and because we believe in the Holy Spirit. You see, that's the, the context and the culture into which Paul wrote the magnificent letter we know as the book of Romans. Let's take a look at that text again for just a moment. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In the deep, dark night of brokenness and rejection, Christians went out and adopted and claimed the lives and sometimes the bodies of those who had been rejected by the world. Now, when Paul writes this, it's a very interesting moment in church history. The Christians have been persecuted under Claudius. Claudius was no more. It's about 25 years after the resurrection, right around there. Nero has taken over as the emperor, and there's a short little break, and there were about six or seven years before he begins to persecute the Christians. And Paul looks at the church in Rome, he's writing from Corinth, and he's in communion with them and communication with them, and they're having a church fight. I know it never happens in modern times, but back then it seemed to happen a lot because Paul was always writing to some church and was having a fight. And the church is split into two groups. And each group thought they had the answer in the right way to do things. Kind of sounds familiar somehow. Paul writes to them. We're all sinners. None of us has the ability to save ourselves. We are like those children. Broken and rejected and left in the night. And God claims each one of us 
And through the work of the Spirit, we are made the children of God, brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter what your background is, what you have or have not achieved in life. God claims you as his child. And that is empowered through the Holy Spirit. Now, those Roman Christians knew there was a large, involved, formal process for adopting a child in which the person adopting the child would proclaim before the community, this child is now my own, and there would be no separation by blood or anything else. Once they were adopted, they were a full part of the family. And these powerful words say that we are claimed in the same way, and the Spirit proclaims before the world that you and I are children of God. And nothing can separate us or take that away from us. The early framers of the creed were speaking into a divided culture as well. The creed, the Apostles' Creed, was there to bring unity to the church, so to, to, to structure out and say those things about which we could unite and share and believe together. When you look at the creed at first, and you look at the teaching on the Holy Spirit, it seems a little short, right? Two sentences. There's there's one sentence at the beginning, talking about how Christ was conceived through the work of the Holy Spirit, and then another little short sentence later on, I believe in the Holy Spirit. But look at the layout of the creed. The birth of Christ and the work of Christ are both initiated by the Holy Spirit. When you read that Christ is conceived by the Holy Spirit, then everything else said about Jesus comes out of the work of the Holy Spirit. Then when you get down to the second part of that creed and and, and you see, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and you start to talk about communion of the saints and the church and how we live in the world in community, all of that too is the work of the Holy Spirit. John Wesley, the accidental founder of the Methodist Church, fell in love with the the writers of the creeds, those those early Christians who who tried to bring us all together and get us on the same page faith-wise. And as as he looked at the creed and he began to study it, he understood, and it's become the heart of who we are as United Methodists, that we know the Holy Spirit is at work in the before, the now, and the after of our salvation. The before, the now, and the after of our salvation. It's more than words. It's Christ, the Spirit of God, who comes into our hearts and prepares us to receive Christ. It's the Spirit that, that brings us to that moment when we stand before the world and make our profession of faith, as our confirmands will soon do. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that that causes us to long to grow in our faith, to reach out and serve Jesus in the world. It's more than words. It's how we live. I was listening to Chantel last week, Chantel Foster from her staff, talk uh, talk with our new members. And she was talking about 23 years ago, roughly, and the, the denomination asked her and Mark, to start a new church. Well, 
you may be wondering who that denomination is. I mean, who, who were the people that did that? I was on that committee. And we did not make it easy on them at all. I can remember specifically asking Mark really tough questions as he was presenting this concept, this idea, this vision led by the Holy Spirit. He felt to grow a church, plant and grow a church here. And I can remember a crystalline moment when I knew it was the right thing to do. And when I knew this was the place and this was the time. And I knew this land before many of you did because we walked it and we debated it and we argued about it a lot before the Holy Spirit prevailed. 23 years later, amazing thing to be back here, to see you all. You are the fulfillment of the work of the Holy Spirit and the dreams and the prayers of people whose names you'll never know, whose faces you'll never see. We buried a lot of them, but who prayed this church into life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit and, and we're almost frightened by it or we think, well, some people have it, I don't have it because it seems like it's always big events in the Bible that bring the Holy Spirit uh, sort of into visibility. But if you really read the Bible carefully, you'll find that those are the exceptions. Most of the time, it's just those times we say yes along the way. Sitting in a room for 20 years ago, group of us voting, if you can imagine, and saying yes to starting this congregation. Saying yes to a thousand million little things is how most of us really connect with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that voice is internal, sometimes it's external. It's when the church says, we need volunteers in youth or in children it's time to sign those pledge cards again. The voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Your action step this week is to, is to listen for that voice and to say yes to one thing and see where it leads. I couldn't imagine ever being in the back of a pickup, riding down a rough scrabble road in northern Kenya to buy a child, but that's where I found myself a few years ago because of a thousand little yeses along the way. In that part of Kenya, sometimes non-Christian groups come and steal Christian children and sell them, enslave them, or hold them hostage. And so with Stanley, we went out one afternoon to try to buy back a Christian child. I can imagine myself being in that place, doing that thing. No one decision led to that moment. It was a thousand yeses. But there we stood at a crossroads in a small village, eventually settling on a price of one dollar for each year of Nora's life. It was my mother's name. I wasn't going to leave there without that child. We bought her back for $12. 
She said, in the pickup between Stanley and I, this is her with my wife, Prudy, Prudy and Nora, who we bought back. This is a little apartment we've just painted for her there on the hospital compound. We drove back, and she was silent and terrified she'd been bought and sold. And I remember the moment we pulled through the gates, and she saw that great cross and flame, the Methodist Church. The gifts of United Methodists from the United States and all over to form these little apartments where people like Nora could come and reclaim their lives. And one little apartment given by the people called United Methodist in Oklahoma so that she might live again. And we did it because the Spirit told us to and because we believe in the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, you are a God of might and power, but you are also a God of tenderness and compassion. And you lead us to places in life that we could never imagine. You give us the opportunity through your Holy Spirit to say yes to a million opportunities to serve. Give us the courage to say yes this week, to trust in one small way serving you will lead to amazing things. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon these who worship here and online that we might be your light in the darkness, empowered by the Spirit. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. Will you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.